Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic takes us back to Indonesia's 2014 legislative elections and the phenomenon of vote buying. At the time, a casual chat with almost anyone in Indonesia turned up stories of money being distributed to voters. But although vote buying is widely held to be endemic in Indonesian politics, it has rarely been studied in detail. One man who has done just that is Professor Edward Aspinall from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Together with several Indonesian colleagues, Professor Aspinall has written a forthcoming paper setting out the mechanics of how electoral candidates in Indonesia buy votes and the logic underpinning their actions. He joins us today to discuss his research. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Dave. And could we kick it off, perhaps, could you explain what exactly does vote buying entail in Indonesia and how widespread is it, in fact, uh, within legislative elections there? Well, so the traditional sort of definition of vote buying is the exchange of material benefits, cash, goods, uh, or other sorts of benefits like jobs uh, in exchange for a vote. Very hard to often carry that out in practice because candidates who distribute cash or other sorts of goods often know that the recipients won't in fact reciprocate uh, with a vote. What we focus on in this, in this particular paper though is really at the sort of extreme end of the vote buying range because there's a lot of distribution of goods which provide collective benefits to communities for example, say building a bridge in a village or fixing up a village mosque. That's a whole other universe of distribution of benefits that take place around Indonesian elections. A lot of candidates also give little mementos like, you know, T-shirts or key rings or cups or crockery, often with their photo or their name on it. We also don't really look at that in this paper. What we look at in this paper is a much more narrowly defined category of actions, that is the distribution of cash. So this in Indonesia usually goes under the name, it has many names actually locally, but one of the most common and universally recognised names is the Sarangan Fajar, which means the dawn attack. So named because uh, very often the money is distributed very close to voting day, often on the, the dawn or um, very early in the morning before people go to vote or within the day or two leading up to the election. So that's what we really focus on. Uh, in this particular election. Now you asked how common it is. The short answer is we don't know exactly. We did a national survey which said that about 25% of people said that they themselves had received cash or gifts of some one sort or another uh, from candidates or parties. We would expect that to involve a bit of under-reporting um, because of what's known as social desirability bias. People often don't like to admit to taking part in activities that are illegal or socially illegitimate, illegitimate uh, when they are asked about them in surveys. But yeah, that's, that looks like a, a somewhere around the figure, perhaps around a third of Indonesian voters uh, receive some sort of a gift. But that varies a lot as well. So this particular paper uh, we're discussing today uh, was written on the basis of two constituencies in rural Java, one in central Java and one in east Java. And it looks as if uh, vote buying is perhaps most common, most intense in that part of Indonesia, whereas in places like um, Jakarta, for example, it's pretty rare to have uh, distribution of individual cash payments. So there does seem to be quite a bit of variation across Indonesia. And you mentioned this figure of maybe a third of voters receiving some kind of gift, not just cash. 
from candidates during the election. I mean, that's pretty widespread. How, how did this come to be a feature of Indonesian politics? So it does have quite deep historical roots, actually. One explanation for why vote buying seems to be so institutionalised and so expected in parts of rural Java, for example, is that there's a long history of distribution of cash around village head elections in that part of Indonesia. We've done separately some research on this topic, and village head elections are often accompanied by uh, very high levels of vote buying, actually, and have been right back during the New Order period or even before. So that's actually a quite a long-established tradition, and a lot of the language that candid- legislative candidates use in Java to describe how they carry out vote buying, the kind of people they recruit to engage in the practice and so on draws on this tradition of vote buying uh, around village head elections. So in addition to this historical background, most candidates date the explosion of vote buying to the introduction of the open list system, the so-called open list system in Indonesia, uh, Indonesia's legislative elections in 2009. So under an open list system, Candidates are competing in multi-member districts, but what determines whether an individual candidate from a party list is elected is their total individual vote tally. The result is that candidates are in effect competing above all against candidates from the same party because what determines which members of those party or which candidates from that same party get the seat is their individual vote tally. So candidates have a really strong incentive Uh, to create their own campaign teams, to promote their individual name recognition amongst voters and to provide incentives to voters in the form of cash payments. So almost all candidates will agree that that was the moment that individualised vote buying in legislative elections really took off. In 2009, the system was first introduced as a result of a constitutional court decision But 2014 was the first elections when candidates knew that it was coming, they had a long time to prepare, and uh, hence you had an even greater intensification of vote buying. Obviously, if you're competing against people from your own party, most candidates are not going to be able to rely on the party machinery before campaigning. As you said, they're forming their own campaign team, so-called success team. How, How do they put those teams together and what sort of people end up in them? There's a very sort of standard pattern. So let's say you're a candidate running for a seat in a district parliament. So you would probably running in an electoral constituency that was consisted of, let's say, three or four sub-districts. So you would choose a few people who are very close to you, hopefully people who had some sort of social influence, like, let's say, influential religious leaders, or they could be local business people with strong business networks. You would appoint them as your sub-district coordinators. Then those sub-district coordinators would in turn appoint village-level coordinators. And beneath them, they would then recruit grassroots vote brokers. And then those vote brokers, they're the people who have the responsibility for recruiting individual voters to vote for the candidate. And again, there's a very standard technique for doing this. Usually uh, the vote brokers draw up lists of voters who are committed to vote for the candidate. And then those lists are passed upward through that pyramidal structure of the team of the success team uh, right up uh, to the candidate. So really, these success team structures are really constructed through personal relationships of various kinds. Uh, We did a survey of success team members in central Java and we asked who was it who invited you to join the success team and mostly people said it was a friend, it was a family member, very few said it was a party leader. 
And then when we asked them who they were targeting to vote for the candidate, mostly they're targeting their own family members, their neighbours, their more distant, distant relatives. So these vote, these vote brokerage structures really map onto interpersonal social networks at the community level. That's how they work. When you talk about these lists of voters, is it just whoever the success team happens to know or is there a real strategy behind thinking about who you're going to distribute cash to? Well, most voters will, or most candidates, I should say, will say that their strategy is above all to uh, target first and foremost loyal voters. Now, when candidates talk in those terms, in a few cases, they're talking about you know, for example, targeting villages which have, if it's a PDIP candidate, for example, targeting a village which has a history of voting for that party. But in reality, what it often boils down to is that candidates are targeting people who they think are loyal to them on personal grounds. So, for example, one of the really classic patterns is you'll get a concentration of effort by a candidate running for a district seat, for example, a concentration of effort in their own village and in a few neighbouring villages where they feel that they have a personal influence. The problem is that once you start, because these success teams are constructed on the basis of personal relationships, once you kind of go for one or two removed from the candidate itself, it becomes very questionable the degree to which loyalty to the candidate really counts. It's often, in fact, um, loyalty or a personal relationship with the vote broker that really matters. And that's what voters also seem to be looking to, to a large degree. It's not so much that many of them are evaluating the characteristics of the candidate, judging the candidate's promises for the region or their track record or whatever it is. Often what seems to count the most is who is it who gave me the money? Is it someone I trust? Is it someone I feel obliged to? that's often what counts. So there is a sort of a loyalty, but it becomes a very diffuse loyalty once you start getting very far removed from the candidate himself or herself. Okay, but then they're not just casting money out to, to random people in the hope that that will attract them to vote for them. It, it is building on some sort of perceived prior loyalty, at least somewhere in their network. Yeah, that tends, that tends to be the case. One candidate we talked to, he was a candidate running for PUN, one of the Islamic-based parties, he put it very nicely. He said, some candidates like to cast their nets into the sea. I like to cast my net into the fish pond where I know there's going to be fish. So the idea is that you're, you're carrying out your efforts in a sort of a social milieu where you know you have some sort of an influence, whether it's a personal direct influence or it's an influence mediated by your brokers. But see, the problem with that is you're putting a lot of responsibility or a lot of trust in your brokers and some of the same candidate actually said you know constructing a success team it's uh, it's like building a snowball and rolling a snowball down the the hill you know once if you put the wrong person in they'll recruit bad people who then recruit bad people and you can just lose a whole village or a whole uh, sub-district by choosing the wrong sorts of people, people who aren't influential or people who aren't trustworthy, people who steal your money as it gets distributed uh, down to the voters. So it's really that relationship with the brokers that's really critical here and it can often go astray. You set out in your paper kind of market logic underpinning the, the distribution of this cash and the amounts involved. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this is, uh, in a way here, we're responding to some of the scholarly literature. There's been, a, especially writings by some of the anthropo 
anthropologists who uh, feel that it's in, inappropriate to, ter- to use the term vote buying because it evokes this kind of imagery of the market where a lot of anthropologists will say this isn't really about a commodity exchange, it's more about gift exchange. But we found really that when you talk to them, candidates really do talk and act as if they're in a marketplace. They use phrases like harga pasar, which means the market price for a vote in a particular community. And in particular, they're very much conscious of what their competitors are paying. And if they can afford it, they'll try and match those payments. Uh, This can cause a real sort of last minute panic. Um, And indeed, for many of our candidates, the candidates we were looking at, in the day or two leading to the election when they realise that they're being outbid by competitors. And then there's often this, t- this real scramble at the, at, right in the, in the last 24 hours or so as candidates are trying to increase the amount of money they're paying. Often they have technical problems because by this stage a lot of the local banks have run out of small denomination bills and you really need that. Um, if you're to be handing out cash in large amounts to large numbers of, or small amounts, I should say, to large numbers of people. And then there's all these sort of dilemmas that candidates face. You know, let's say that you're running hard in a particular village and you're giving out, say, 15,000 rupiah, about a dollar fifty or so, and you find out that the competitor is handing out 30,000 and your brokers start to call you. They say, look, you're getting outbid, you've got to do something. Um, one obvious response then is to distribute 30,000 but to distribute to only half the people on your, on your list. So there are all those sorts of questions and challenges that candidates uh, face at the last minute. And a lot of candidates who lost say that they didn't handle this last minute panic very well. They weren't prepared. They didn't realise what their competitors were going to pay. They underestimated the voter turnout. They got their sums wrong. I mean, everyone knows that you won't get full compliance, that there's no way that 100% of the people you distribute cash to will vote for you. Um, that it, there's even a, a, fra- a phrase, a commonly used phrase for this, it's margin error, so it's like an Indonesian, Indonesianized version of the word margin of, a term margin of error. So yeah, that's right. So that's the, the sort of the market logic. And you get as well, you, get, you can see this, that sometimes neighbouring electoral constituencies have different market prices and often you can trace that back to the influence of one or two particularly well-resourced candidates who started distributing higher payments and that sort of drove other candidates to try to match those payments. We even found uh, one constituency in Rembang uh, where the leading candidates reached an agreement to cap the price, I think it was at 30,000 uh, rupees, so about $3 a head to basically to avoid bankrupting themselves. It's fascinating to hear about that kind of collusion and, and market logic going on. Obviously, we're talking about large sums of money. I mean, how much, how much are candidates spending on vote buying and what percentage would it be roughly of their overall campaign expenditure, do you think? There's a big variation, of course. We actually looked at this quite closely after the election in one district in central Java. One of my co-authors, Noor Rahman, uh, went back and interviewed 19 candidates, nine who won seats and 10 who came close. And we found amongst our, and these are candidates running at the district level, right? So this is the lowest level of Indonesia's legislatures. I don't know, I suppose you'd say the, lo- the equivalent of, say, a local council uh, in Australia. Of those uh, 19 candidates, we found the average expenditure on vote buying uh, was 420 million rupees. So that's about $40,000. 
So that's at the district level. Candidates running for the national or provincial seats uh, were generally up around or over a billion, so 100,000. So that's just the expenditure on vote buying. And again, candidates varied a lot on to what extent vote buying ate up a proportion of their overall campaign expenditure. Some of them were also putting a lot of money into those collective gifts or often called club goods, such as, you know, paying for a, a, a bridge in the village or repairs to a village road or uniforms for local sports clubs and so on. So a lot of candidates also spend a lot of money on that sort of thing. So we're looking at yeah, perhaps about $100,000 total campaign expenditure for these district candidates and then a lot, lot more than that for candidates running at the national or provincial level. Do you have some sense of how effective overall is vote buying? I mean, almost ubiquitous in the districts you're looking at, but is it sort of winning office for for the people paying this cash? So one of the clear findings we had is that most voters who receive payments don't actually reciprocate with a vote. So of those 19 candidates at the district level I told you about a moment ago, their so-called margin error was 73%. So that means that 73% of the people they distributed cash to did not vote for them. So, and that's the, I mean, there are certain trends there. You can see that if you pay larger amounts, your margin error tends to decline. So you get a better rate of return the more you pay. Um, And that the winners tended to get lower uh, margin errors than the losers. But nevertheless, it is suggestive that it's not so much that vote buying, for most candidates at least, is effective or that you can buy your way to electoral victory, but rather that if you don't distribute cash, it's very hard for you to be competitive. So talking about this, and we have an, I have another paper co-authored with a number of other colleagues, the way we've started to think about this is to think of these cash payments as more like an entry ticket. It's like the ticket you, you pay, uh, the, the, or rather the ticket you purchase in order for you to be seriously considered as a candidate by voters. If you don't pay that entry ticket, people aren't going to think you're serious. They're not going to think you're generous. They're not going to think you're serious about running. They won't think you have a prospect of delivering development goods in the future to their communities. But paying in itself is not enough for you to be elected, especially, after all, because all the other candidates are paying as well, and many voters are receiving payments from multiple candidates. Can I draw you out a bit further on that idea of getting your foot in the door, a kind of entry ticket to the race to be thought of as serious? I mean, why do these sums of cash function that way? I mean, as you also mentioned in the paper, across the spectrum of money politics strategies, vote buying is the one that very few candidates across Indonesia will actually openly admit to. There's kind of a stigma associated with it. How does that work? You have on the one hand, this is something that can't be discussed openly in many parts of Indonesia. In fact, it's also illegal. But on the other hand, you almost have to do it in the areas you've looked at to, to be considered a serious contender. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question, actually. It's something we really tried to get at in this research. One thing which really does come out is that people will often say, oh, of course, I won't vote for somebody because they give me cash. But then you ask, well, would you vote for someone who doesn't give you cash? And they say no. So again, that's where that entry ticket comes in. So it's that the cash payment is acting as a signal of the candidate's seriousness. 
And to the extent that there does seem to be social meaning attached to this, part of it seems to be about this idea of being a sort of charitable, effective or generous person. You know, that someone who gives back to the community, and that can be in the form of individual cash payments, but it can be in the form of like donations to a local religious school or donations to the community to fix up some part of village infrastructure that isn't working, that that's the sort of candidate uh, you're looking for. And the cash payment is a signal that you're not going to be voting for a candidate who is stingy, who's greedy, who only thinks about themselves, who's going to use their office in order to accumulate wealth but not redistribute it, some of it to voters. I mean, on that issue of would you vote for someone who's not handing out cash, I mean, you set out in fact, two of the 70 candidates, the serious contenders that you interviewed, did gain election without distributing money. How did they achieve that? The basic answer is that both of these candidates had particularly strong networks that they relied upon. So one was a, um, a PDIP candidate. PDIP being the uh, party of President Jokowi, headed by former President Megawati Sukarnaputri. Exactly. And in in this particular town uh, where he was running, it's also the party strongly associated with sort of the the non-orthodox Muslims, let's put it like that. And this particular candidate, I guess you could call him a businessman, but he was also a sort of a a tough guy who had a, a long history of involvement in, let's say, the shady side of business in town. So these are things like, you know, bars and karaoke bars and... I can't quite remember if he was involved in gambling as well. But as part of his role as um, involvement in that, his history of that involvement in that sort of business, he'd been looking after a lot of the poorer residents of the town. You know, a lot of unemployed youths had got jobs as security guards or um, in some of these entertainment venues as a result of his assistance. Uh, He had a reputation for helping out such people when they were in trouble, for example, when a family member was sick. Um, So he he did have a very sort of personalised appeal based on the help he'd given uh, to poorer um, members of the community in the past. The other one who did it was a really influential uh, religious preacher associated with Nadatul Ulama, the big traditionalist Islamic organisation uh, in, which is very, very, very strong in this particular part of East Java where he was standing. So it is possible to win seats if you have these really very strong social networks that are prepared to mobilise for you, but that's a big gamble. And we also met a lot of, we also did meet some candidates who thought that they could uh, take that path, but then lost. And we even met some candidates, religious candidates running for Islamic parties who also didn't want to distribute cash. But then we found that some of their brokers in the villages actually found, felt very embarrassed by this and they were in spending some of their own money to distribute to, to voters. They didn't want to ask people to vote for the candidate without handing over cash because it's such an established part of local political practice that they were actually spending their own money in order to support their favoured candidate. Could I... Go back to, I mean, you mentioned on average in the in the 19 candidates you looked at, the, the essentially a strike rate of one in four, you know, comparing how much cash they distribute, how many votes they get. Is this something the candidates are happy with, that sort of strike rate? Uh, I mean, after every election in Indonesia, we kind of hear these, I guess, almost tragicomic stories of people going back to mosques and asking for the carpet they donated because they didn't get in. 
Is there a real frustration among candidates that they're handing out so much cash and not getting that many votes often in return? Oh, absolutely. Most, most candidates find this very frustrating. They're often extremely resentful about voters. They're often very cynical about voters. They think that uh, voters are very materialistic and transactional. They don't care about the you know, long-term development of their regions and so on and so forth. Um, and many of the candidates we met, especially those who have long history of involvement in the political parties for which they were standing, uh, really blame the open list system for this explosion of, of vote buying. The picture that you paint of electoral politics in Indonesia is a highly personalised one. This open list system creating competition between even candidates, sometimes the most intense competition between candidates from the same party, people relying on personal social networks and sort of the distribution of cash and other gifts to, to seek votes. If we put that on one side and then we look at kind of national political dynamics overall and sort of the overall votes that parties are getting. And you kind of see the party in a former uh, former president, Dusilo Bambang Yudhiyono, its vote clearly declining in 2014 with the corruption scandals it had and him himself exiting the stage. PDIP that you mentioned, its vote going up with a popular presidential candidate in Jokowi and the fact that the party stayed outside Yudhiyono's government for 10 years. How do those two sides of the coin, I guess, fit together uh, this highly personalised political competition with the overall image of the parties and their performance on the, on the national political stage. The votes that we see in the districts are sort of a result of a mixture of the personalised campaigns that are run and of these bigger, broader party-based national dynamics that you describe. So, for example, there's always a proportion of people in districts throughout Indonesia who will vote for a party symbol uh, because they feel a particular affinity to that party uh, rather than to vote for an individual candidate. I would say overall, however, that as you move towards a personalised system, you would expect the votes for the different parties to be sort of clumping around the mean. And we are getting that general trend in Indonesia. I mean, we don't really have any big parties left in Indonesia. Parties are all sort of medium-sized or small. And even parties such as the National Democratic Party run by the tycoon Surya Palo, which doesn't really have a strong national appeal or a particularly charismatic national leader, is still, still able to get quite a large national vote. And I would argue that was primarily by relying on strong, locally influential candidates with their own individual followings in the region. So I would see the overall party vote that we get in these elections is sort of a, a result of a mixing of those two effects. And you mentioned the kind of long-standing party activists really resent the open list system and the type of electoral competition they see it as creating. Indonesia's political parties are debating the laws for the 2019 elections at present and pushing to return to a closed list system where voters would only vote for a party and the highest ranked candidates from, from the party uh, in an order the party determined would then gain office. What effect do you think if Indonesia did return to a closed list system that would have on the sort of vote buying uh, you've seen in the 2014 elections? Yeah, so I would expect that it would reduce the overall intensity of vote buying because the, the logic is clear. Let's say if you're in a, in a, running for a party in a district where your particular party has 
throughout its history has only ever won two seats. And if you're number four on that party list, it's very unlikely that you as an individual candidate would now want to invest your own money in vote buying. Under the current system, there is a chance that someone on the, num- the number four position on the candidate list could win a seat by simply getting a larger personal vote than other candidates on that same list. So I think that the practice of vote buying is now very well established. So presumably lead candidates on party lists will still invest their finances in some level of vote buying, but this incredible free-for-all that we saw in the last election will become somewhat more restrained, I would imagine. I would guess that that's the likely outcome we'll see if we go back to the party list. How much of a priority do you think it should be for, for Indonesia to be trying to do away with vote buying? Is that something that's even possible? And apart from you know changing to a closed list system, for instance, what, what other steps could Indonesia be taking to, to combat the practice? I think it's really hard. Certainly electoral reform and back to a closed list would probably be the, the single step you could identify which would have the greatest effect. I think it, is, it should, I mean overall it's got to be a priority. I mean we know the results of this sort of transactional logic which takes place around election times that candidates are investing huge personal sums in their efforts to get elected and once they get elected they then have to recoup this investment and they usually do that by corruption. Everyone knows that, candidates talk about it and voters talk about it. But it is very difficult to engineer your way out of such a system once it's already become firmly established and we see that around the region in places like Philippines for example where vote buying is also deeply entrenched. One of the clear national patterns we have in Indonesia, um, of course, is that vote buying is much less prevalent in middle class areas. So you could say that overall and over the long term, one of the pretty much the most surefire way to get rid- reduce vote buying is to generate economic development. But that's not going to resolve the, question, the problem in the short term, of course. Ed, I mean, there's still so much more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for for sharing your insights and your research with us today. It's been great. Great. You're very welcome, Dave. Thanks. Professor Edward Aspinall's paper on vote buying, co-authored with Noor Rahman, Ahmad Zainal Hamdi, Rubaidi and Susiana Eli Triantini, is to be published at the Journal of East Asian Studies. We'll throw up a link on the podcast page at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog once it's out. Tune in again on 16 June for the next instalment of Talking Indonesia with my co-host Dr. Ken Satyawan. In the meantime, don't forget you can catch up on the entire Talking Indonesia back catalogue at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Or subscribe via iTunes and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.